Thank you, Steve. It's daunting to uh, follow Dr. Leakey. Uh, I'm humbled by that, but I want to try to bring some of the things home to North Carolina that he's emphasized. And so I got to tell you a little story about I was at the gym the other day, buffing up, and a little, we have a small little TV in the locker room, and a little story about climate change came across that TV. Well, I heard this guy, this guy is um, extremely muscular, behind me say, uh, this is all a bunch of bull. Now, this guy is, I mean, he bench presses 350 to 400, wears an NRA t-shirt, you know, this, you don't mess with this guy. But three people, before I could turn around and talk about Eastern North Carolina disappearing, three people had already turned around and challenged him, who weighed about half as much as he did. And I thought, you know, when it's come to the men's locker room, it has finally arrived in North Carolina. This intersection between air, quality, transportation, and energy is a critical one. All of these items are so inextricably linked together and intertwined that when we do one thing to one, it affects all three. I'd also add that we really need to throw another item in there, which is the economy. The health of our economy is dependent on what we do with these items as well. I drove here today in my personal vehicle, a VW Jetta wagon, diesel. I drove here on 100% pure biodiesel. No petroleum needed, thank you. This biodiesel was produced from vegetable oil and chicken fat, used vegetable oil and chicken fat. Future tankfuls, I'm sure, will also come from soybean oil, from canola oil, and I should mention we're having, NC State's having a canola field day tomorrow in eastern North Carolina for farmers. Canola is coming, folks. Invest in canola. My greenhouse gases emitted by this vehicle using B100 are 78% below what they would be in a conventional diesel vehicle. And as you heard from Dr. Leakey, attending to that problem, and for the state of North Carolina, and particularly the eastern part of our state, is very critical. My fuel comes from a production plant, a biorefinery in Chatham County, from Piedmont Biofuels, which is on track this year to produce at the rate of one million gallons of pure biodiesel annually. Similar plants are now in operation and producing biodiesel in Dillsborough, in Asheville, in Lenore, and another plant scheduled to go online later this year in Autryville. How many of you know where Autryville is? There we go. There are a few out there, not too many. That's, I think it's between Clinton and Fayetteville. Is that right? And that's what we're seeing is together when all these plants are operating at full capacity and they ramp up, to be the equivalent of about 9 million gallons of bio, pure biodiesel produced in this state, which if you turned it into a 20% blend, would be the equivalent of 45 million gallons 
of biodiesel, B20 in the state. It is a real start. It is happening locally from the ground up. It is happening regionally. We're growing an industry in this state with jobs attached that eventually is going to benefit our farmers while improving our environment greatly. From an energy security standpoint, we must focus on how to accelerate this quickly and dramatically. Here in North Carolina, we don't produce or refine any conventional petroleum. In fact, we do the opposite. We ship 10 to $15 billion a year out of our pockets, out of state, much of it out of country, to pay for the fuel. And the jobs go with it. As Katrina and Rita taught us so well, we are totally dependent on outside sources now for these fuels. And we found through Katrina and Rita that we had no fuel for five days coming into the state. We found through that experience that local governments were extremely vulnerable, much to the surprise of some of us in terms of just the degree of that vulnerability. When supply gets tight, independent distributors are the first ones to be cut off or to be reduced or to be shut out of the terminal. However, local and state governments operating on low bid typically use independent distributors. The result is that the trucks stopped showing up. Now Charlotte responded in, I thought, a creative way by locking down all their fuel and sending, giving them all credit cards and sending them out to use their fuel in the private sector so that they would hang on to an emergency supply if they needed. Our state stations, operating with only 10,000 gallon tanks, began to grow dry and we moved through the Department of Transportation and their leadership to quickly do an emergency purchase of a million gallons, which we had to get from the Tidewater area and get the tr and get tire trucks to go get it and bring it to us. All of this should be an alarm bell for us. Several red flags. This was a natural disaster. But the next supply cutoff or reduction might be entirely different. Perhaps the oil fields in Nigeria or Angola will be overrun with their poor, angry citizens who don't presently benefit from the oil production there. Perhaps Hugo Chavez will decide that just for kicks, he'll turn off that spigot to the United States and get his friends in Ecuador, Bolivia, and other South American countries to do the same. Perhaps the king of Saudi Arabia, the ultimate target of bin Laden and al-Qaeda, will fall. Perhaps Iraq will totally disintegrate and the pipelines will be blown up. Perhaps Iran will decide to hold its oil off the market for a while. Or perhaps Vladimir Putin decides to squeeze Europe and the United States by choking down Russia's production in the world market. Ladies and gentlemen, enough is enough. We have got to take control of our destiny. Walking around with a noose around our neck can no longer be tolerated. We must make no mistake about it. 
we must, we must move quickly. There's growing consensus that world oil production is either peaking or will be peaking soon. Currently, and for now, a substantial period of time, for every barrel we find in new discoveries, we're using three and a half. What remains, three quarters of the reserves, and we're not really sure the extent of those reserves because when Saudi Arabia took over oil production, they immediately doubled the amount of reserves they reported and then ceased to report anymore. We think to allow them to have a higher OPEC quota was the reason for this. So we don't know, but three quarters of those reserves are under the Middle East. Meanwhile, demand is exploding. Eight to 10% increases in China and India, increases occurring in other developing nations, a continued 2% increase in the United States. These are two trains, supply and demand, that are coming at each other at a breakneck speed and they're gonna collide. To turn this train around is gonna require cooperation collaboration, and commitment on an unprecedented scale. We must get a handle on the situation now. You know, we can always make a thousand excuses why we shouldn't do anything. We can always do that. That time is over. We have got to confront this issue and deal with it. Step one, our local government and state government fleets have got to get out in front. They can use an 85% blend of ethanol. Flex fuel vehicles are available for them to tap and purchase. We've got to use at least a 20% blend of biodiesel in all our diesel vehicles. We've got to use E10, a 10% blend of ethanol, in our regular gasoline. There's no reason every vehicle can take it. We've got to start buying more hybrids, downsizing our fleets and, and, and going to smaller vehicles suitable to the task at hand with higher mile per gallon ratings. The state has 6,000 E85 vehicles now, but we don't have in many cases the stations to fill them up. We have in Raleigh E10 for our gasoline vehicles and the Department of Transportation under the leadership of two gentlemen who are here today, Drew Harbinson and Bruce Thompson with North Carolina DOT, have expanded biodiesel, will be, ex have, have expanded E10 to all of the DOT service stations. And then by the end of this calendar year, we'll have B20 at all of the DOT 120 service stations. We're under a mandate now, the General Assembly, under leadership of people like Representative Harrison, the chairman of the House Energy Committee, under the leadership of, the, of she and many others, we have a 20% displacement requirement now for petroleum. So by the end of 2009, we've got to displace 20% of our fuel. I think that's a goal that local governments throughout the state should embrace as well. And I think it's something that private fleets need to think about seriously doing. Step two is we've got to get incentives in place for in-state production so we don't incur those transportation charges and we have a much more efficient system. We've got to 
put incentives in place for in-state distribution because we've got to get the infrastructure up on the private and public side to fill these vehicles up. We've got, as step three, we've got to, if you're in the Char greater Charlotte region, the greater Triangle region, or the greater Asheville region, please join your Clean Cities Coalition there. They're the leaders, the gatherers of the stakeholders. They're leading the charge, identifying the locations where stations are needed, helping move everything forward there. Join it. And what we've got to do is expand that movement to the rest of the state, to Wilmington, to the Triad region here, to the Unifor region in Catawba and Burke and Caldwell area, to Fayetteville region. We've got to expand that. We've got to do research on feedstocks. We all know that corn is not going to be the answer on the ethanol side for us. Soybeans probably not the answer ultimately long term on the biodiesel side. But there are other crops that are better matched to us that we can do. And when we tap out on starch-based crops for ethanol, what we can do is move to cellulosic ethanol from wood waste, from switchgrass and other crops and waste that we can use. We are uniquely positioned in North Carolina to be a leader in that area and to tap that if we make the investment. A biofuels leadership group led by our biotech center and the rural center and our universities has recommended $32 million in funding this year, in next year's budget to help support research and development in cellulosic ethanol and other biofuel feedstocks. We need to support that effort. We need to be the leader in this effort. It, it, it will bring us a new economy to the state and fuel to the state. We've got to prepare ourselves for a supply disruption. You know, sticking your head in the sand is not the way to settle or handle this thing. For local governments, that's going to mean that you're going to have to think about increasing storage. You're going to have to put backup suppliers in place. Don't think you're going to be able to run to the state stations. They aren't big enough to handle it. They can't handle you. That's a false myth. If you, th if you think that, that that's going to be your answer, it simply isn't. So think you need a plan for your situation of how you're going to address this if we have another supply disruption. And finally, the last step is we've all got to walk the talk. You need to be a role model for your business, for your agency, for your church or synagogue, for your kids. Buy a hybrid. There's a used market now for hybrids. That's quite extensive. Buy a hybrid. My wife drives a hybrid. She gets 58 miles to the gallon. That's a pretty significant efficiency improvement for, for our family. I get 43 miles a gallon in my Jetta. If you don't like that and you like ethanol because you like to drink the best and burn the rest, if you want to go that way, then buy a flex fuel vehicle. They're available to the public now. They're out there. But the time has come to take action. The time is now to decrease our reliance on foreign oil, to build a new economy in North Carolina that's going to reinvigorate our rural areas, 
The time has come to improve our air quality and greatly decrease our emissions of greenhouse gases. Folks, we, you know, folks, people say North Carolina, what, what can we do in that regard? Well, we'd be the 23rd, 24th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world if we were a country. The only reason I think you're seeing action on the federal level begin to slowly wake up is because of the actions of leadership on the state level that we've seen so far. And finally, the time has come to leave a world for our children that has hope and opportunity. We don't have the moral right to use all the oil, to saddle our children with environmental crises that are out of control, to leave them with a greatly worsened economy. We simply don't have that right. We can do better if we act together collaboratively, cooperatively, showing the leadership and commitment that I know is within us, if we'll only let it out. Thank you.